guys. Welcome to Not Another Anxiety Show. I'm your host, Kelly Walker, and joining me today is guest Jenna Overbaugh. Hey, Jenna. Hey, thank you so much for having me. I am so glad you could be here today. Do you mind if I share a little bit more about you with our listeners before we uh, get chatting here? Yeah, that would be great. Wonderful. Okay, so Jenna Overbaugh is a licensed professional counselor who has been working with people who have OCD and anxiety since 2008. She has experience working at all levels of care, including eight years at a residential recovery unit with some of the most debilitating cases of OCD in the world. She is also the host of her own podcast called All the Hard Things and struggled with postpartum OCD when she had her now four-year-old. You can find Jenna at jenna.overbaugh on Instagram. So Jenna, the first thing that came to mind for me when, when we started chatting about doing a podcast episode together was how people can throw around the term OCD so flippantly. I mean, I recently mm-hmm. heard someone make a comment about how the host of a party we were at was so OCD because he requested that we take our shoes off before coming inside. And, you know, I was hoping you can kind of clarify this for us. Like when you take away some of the more well-known themes or ways in which OCD comes up, like cleanliness OCD or contamination OCD, what's under there? What's happening with OCD. You often call it the doubting disease. So can you just tell us a little bit more about the nature of OCD? Absolutely. So I agree with you. It is a huge problem. And it seems like as soon as I start to believe that maybe we're going more in the right direction, uh, that someone else uses it in a really uh, not helpful way. Um, Just for instance, the other day I was at the gym and uh, I do like a I do a boot camp style workout. And um, at the end of the of the camp, I was, you know, helping just put the weights back, just trying to be like nice and helpful. And someone asked, Oh, do you have OCD? And I wanted to be like, girl, you have no idea. <laughs> um, but that's exactly what it is, right? Like it's this interpretation that it's it's just like this overly, you know need to have things be perfect or have things be perfectly clean or this fear of germs. And those things can definitely happen. And those presentations do exist and they can certainly be debilitating. But what isn't OCD is when people like it. Um, it's not OCD when someone, um, you know, just, you know, just enjoys and totally loves uh, and has no issue with having people take their shoes off right before they get in the house, right? So um, what OCD is, though, is, as you mentioned, um, it's it's the doubt disorder. And so it's really this issue where um, we all have intrusive thoughts or ideas or images or impulses. They're just these kind of weird thoughts or strange or taboo thoughts that come in out of nowhere. We all have them. Research supports this again and again, that we all experience these things, just these spam thoughts that we're kind of like, where the heck did that come from? (laughs) Um, But when it comes to people who have obsessive compulsive disorder, they have certain tendencies or vulnerabilities in their brain that make those thoughts stick. It's kind of more like Velcro. And what happens, especially when you have OCD, is you tend to interpret those thoughts or those otherwise spam or intrusive thoughts as being somehow significant. So you know, someone may very well be able to, you know, be carrying a baby and have that kind of fleeting thought of, oh my gosh, what if I just threw that baby off the stairway, you know, and and they might be like, oh, that's a weird thought. And, And they kind of let it come in and they notice it, but they move right back into what it was that they were doing. They continue to hold the baby. They continue swaying or having their conversations. They don't think about it again. But when you have OCD in that example, for instance, what someone with OCD might do is they might think that that thought somehow is significant, that they are responsible Mm. for that thought potentially, meaning, oh my gosh, what is it about me that I had that thought? Why would I have that thought about dropping that baby? Does that mean something about me? Um, That's a bad thought. So people with OCD tend to judge their thoughts. They're good or bad or perverted or taboo or disgusting or perverted. Whereas, you know, people who don't have OCD, they don't even go into that kind of detail. They just notice it and they go back to what it was that they were doing. And so people with OCD, they tend to invest a lot in these thoughts, um, whereas other people don't. And that investment into the thought, you can imagine why that would cause so much anxiety. Why is that? Why am I having that thought? What does that mean about me? I need to control that thought. I never want to have that thought again. That anxiety creates this urgency or this need to have to do some type of compulsion or ritual. 
So compulsions or rituals, you know, follow and they temporarily make the person feel better. And then they just kind of reinforce everything from there. So it, it ends up being a very awful cycle that people can get really, really stuck in. And it can be a, a truly debilitating condition, especially when it's not treated. Yeah. And, you know, it kind of reminds me of, you know, the example you gave, it reminds me of how there's this phenomenon where most people, right, if they hike to the top of a peak and there's of a mountain and there's like a sheer drop off there, many people will have the intrusive thought like, gosh, what if I just stepped off right now? Right. Mm -hmm. What if I just threw myself off? What if I just stepped off? And like you said, it's it's completely normal to have these sort of unbidden, intrusive, distressing thoughts as part of our human experience. But it sounds like those of us that struggle with OCD often sort of interpret those thoughts as some kind of indication of intent or something about ourselves. Yeah, absolutely. And so in that example, which is such a great example because you're exactly right, uh, that is one of the common and commonly experienced intrusive experiences, you know, at a really high tower or like at a cliff, most people probably would have that thought. Another common one that, you know, most people don't say until someone says it and then suddenly <laughs> everyone comes out of the woodworks and says, oh yeah, I've had that thought before, um, is when they're driving. Um, maybe they're by themselves or with someone else, but they have this, you know, very intrusive out of nowhere thought that's like, what if I just swerved and hit that car? Or what if I just swerved off this bridge? Um, and of course, that is not indicative of any intent, but people who have OCD would be like, oh my gosh, what does it mean about me that I had that thought about just stepping off the cliff? Does that mean that I want to? Am I am I like actually suicidal? Am I actually this very impulsive, you know, person who has no control over their behaviors? I better never go, you know, hiking again. I better never get in my car again. Exactly. And so every Same time that they do that. Yeah, exactly. So every time that they do that, it makes intuitive sense, right? It makes intuitive sense on the superficial level to never get in the car again, to like never go hiking again. But unfortunately, by engaging in those compulsions, what we do by avoiding, it's we're giving our brain the message of like, ah, good thing you didn't go hiking that next time because you might have walked off the cliff or good thing you let your mom drive, you know, because otherwise you would have had another one of those thoughts and you could have acted on it. So we we avoid these things or we act compulsively or do a ritual to make ourselves feel better. But what we don't often realize is that in by nature of just doing that compulsion or avoiding or whatever, we are making that obsession and that fear stronger for next time. And so that's where exposure and response prevention comes in, right? Which I'm sure we'll talk about. It's this paradoxical nature of like flipping all of your safety mechanisms on its head and, you know, facing your fears and all of that good stuff. But yeah, I mean, you can imagine in those situations, right? Like you would stop driving, you would stop engaging in the things that you value. It can just become a, a total, a, a totally new level. It starts out really innocently and really insidiously, mm -hmm. like we've talked about, but um, it snowballs and it has the potential to keep snowballing like that over time. Yeah. And while it might bring us, right, some of that initial relief, it really does reinforce the narrative that like hiking's not safe, driving's not right. safe, and, and our world can quickly get smaller, right? Mm -hmm. it's, yeah. Um, and I know I'm, you know, kind of mentioned this a, a minute ago, but OCD, right? It's not just fear of contamination and compulsive cleaning. What are some of the other themes you've encountered? Things that maybe people wouldn't um, think of. Like I just, like, I didn't even realize relationship OCD, right? Mm -hmm. Is a thing. I didn't realize relationship OCD was a theme for, for many people. Or what are some of, I don't know, the themes that, and I want to get what's under the theme or the context and why, you know, um, zooming out from the theme is important. But yeah, I was just hoping right. you could share some of the themes that you've encountered. Because again, I think people that maybe don't know a lot about OCD or haven't experienced it, they just think of like the cleanliness aspect. And that, again, that can be just as debilitating and just as much a struggle. But um, yeah, just tell us, tell us a little bit about the other themes you've encountered. Absolutely. And this is exactly why I think the subtypes or the, you know, kind of categories or subcategories or manifestations more commonly seen in OCD can be super helpful because you're right. People tend to have this probably because of the media, right? Because it's easier to portray that in movies. It's less taboo. It's less risky to portray that. 
it's also, those are things that might feel a little bit safer to talk about, right? Like that, you know, I'm just really terrified of getting COVID. So like, yeah, I still wipe down all my mail, even though that's not the CDC guidelines, right? Like that's a little bit easier and less taboo to talk about than some of the other subtypes that we experience. So we actually, um, there's been some research to suggest that when we actually get down to it, contamination OCD and perfectionism OCD and all those kind of more traditional uh, manifestations that you hear or read about aren't even or may not even be the most common presentation. (laughs) It may actually be more like harm OCD or even like sexual intrusive thoughts. And so um, harm OCD could be any obsession or any fear that has to do with um, you getting harmed either on purpose or on accident or you harming someone else on purpose or on accident. So um, I've worked with plenty of people who had fears that they, you know, like if I'm buy a pair of scissors or if I'm by, you know, knives, you know, like I may just lose it one day and kill everybody in my family, even though they have absolutely no evidence of that. It's just a thought and they invested in that thought. And so they get rid of all the hammers. They get rid of all the knives. They put everything that they could possibly harm anybody with. They put it away or they put it outside or they cannot use it unless it's under close supervision. Um, And, you know, it comes out in a lot of other ways too. I mean, um, related to that is another subtype, uh, sexual intrusive thoughts. So this obsession or obsessions about, um, you know, doing something more taboo or more sexual in nature that is very ego dystonic, right? So that's another feature of OCD that we haven't touched on, which is that the content should be ego dystonic, which is just a fancy way for saying that the content is inconsistent with your values. It's mm-hmm. not something that you want to do. It's not something that you are curious about. It scares you when you have these thoughts. Your urgency is to get away from this content. You do not want to necessarily pursue it. Um, so they're very ego dystonic, which contributes to why they're so scary and so frightening. So distressing, um, right? If something's right. so inconsistent with our values, it's yeah, like, and, ah. and it's like right, and then it's like, well, then you know, I don't even know myself. I'm going yeah. crazy, which yeah. is kind of like a secondary fear. Um, But yeah, sexual intrusive thoughts, there are lots of people out there who have very clearly egodystonic thoughts about potentially harming or or being sexual with children or teenagers in a way that they absolutely would never do. Um, I've worked with so many, you know, individuals who like have to, they never leave their house. They refuse to leave their house because they do not want to be anywhere near a child or anywhere near a teenager because they're terrified if they even look at them that that somehow is indicative that they were looking at them sexually. And it's like, you know, like how, who, who can go a day in the life without looking at a child, right? Like at the grocery store or on TV or whatever, like you can imagine that that would be a very isolating way to live. And we have other ones, you know, we have relationship OCD, like you mentioned, obsessions about a relationship. It could be a romantic partner, um, could be about a romantic relationship, but it could also be with anyone or anything that you have a relationship with, just obsessing about the integrity of that relationship with, um, you know, friends, coworkers, your child, your parents, even your pet. Um, I've, I've worked with some people who have like obsessions and compulsions about the integrity of their relationship with their dog. Like they just want to make sure that they are being the best dog owner and that their dog is as happy as they possibly can be. Um, we could go on forever, but there's moral uh, scrupulosity, OCD, obsessions about having to, like right and wrong, you know, trying to be as as good of a person or as morally um, perfect as a person as possible, religious uh, scrupulosity, so obsessions about religion or religious figure or figures, sexual orientation OCD, wanting to be like 100% sure about your sexual orientation, um, needing to know with absolute certainty exactly where you stand 100% with no wavering about that whatsoever. Um, I mean, we could go on. And, and the, the truth is that OCD Endless. can latch on to anything. Yeah, anything. OCD can latch on to anything. And for every one that I mentioned, there's three more that I haven't mentioned. Um <laughs> And for every one that I'm not mentioning right now, in 10 years, there will probably be several others. And so, you know, as much as these subtypes, you know, I'm sure there are people out there listening who are like, oh my gosh, that's me. Like, I didn't think that was a thing. And I think that's great. I think that helps them become more OCD aware. 
and we wouldn't be where we are without those subtypes. I also don't want people to think like, oh my gosh, I thought I had OCD this whole time, but I'm not seeing it anywhere. I'm not seeing it on these Hmm. websites. I'm not hearing about it on these podcasts. I must not have OCD. OCD can latch on to anything. We didn't know about relationship OCD 10 years ago. It doesn't mean that it didn't exist. It's just that people didn't talk about it enough yet. We didn't have the research. We didn't have the community for it. And so, you know, OCD can latch on to anything. It's obsessions. It's compulsions. It's intrusive thoughts, intrusive images, persistent doubt that just won't, you know, relent. Um, And yeah, I mean, if you're fitting all the other boxes, distress and impairment and intolerance of uncertainty and all of that, even if you don't see or resonate with any of the subtypes, I would almost guarantee, right, that you probably have a place in this community. Yeah. Can I do a little shout out to Health OCD? Is that okay? Oh, yes, yes, yes. Absolutely. Little shout out, little shout out. Yeah. Well, like you said, I mean, it's, I think it's, um, the themes really are endless. It's right. Anything that sort of feels like it's attacking what we value, what's important to us. Like it, it really, it could be anything. And so that kind of leads me right into my next question is like, what's the benefit? It can be really helpful to sort of recognize these subtypes, these themes and whatnot, but what is the benefit of sort of zooming out right from the specific subtype theme or, or context of the OCD? Such a good question. And it's something, it's one strategy and one direction that I feel really strongly about um, as a provider, as a therapist, but also as someone who personally has struggled with OCD, right? So yeah. um, I, where I think people, you know, people who are working through their OCD, but also therapists, where I think they go wrong is that they focus too much on the content. They focus yeah. too much on fixing the relationship with contamination and addressing the fear of germs and addressing the fear of, you know, knives potentially and harm OCD, right? And it's like, I think that's why when we treat everything like so superficial, like that the problem is the relationship and the relationship OCD or that the problem is you're, you know, trying to, you know, just extinguish the fear about your sexual orientation or whatever. It's like, we're not extinguishing fears here. We need to truly work with the person to accept uncertainty. Um, I was just at a conference, the International OCD Foundation Conference, like two weeks ago um, in Denver. And Jonathan Grayson, who is an expert in OCD, and Liz Mackingvale, also an expert in OCD, they gave a really wonderful talk about how ERP, exposure and response prevention, is not the gold standard treatment for OCD. And it was like a really well-attended talk because obviously it's like, of course it is. Oh my gosh. Like, of course ERP (laughs) is the gold standard. Um, But we go there and we realize that their talk is about how, you know, it's ERP plus AU, which is exposure and response prevention plus accepting uncertainty. And when you do ERP, if, if you're doing it like how I did it the first couple of years, which is not like as effective as it could have been, yeah, you're doing exposures to the contamination. You're doing exposures to the harm. You're doing exposures to, you know, the, uh, the orientation, you know, that you're afraid of being sexually attracted to or whatever. Um, and, and we need to use those superficial content items to kind of like poke the bear, I, I say, But the bear, the actual bear and the actual thing that we need to be sitting with is like that generic underlying uncertainty that is inevitable as as a human being in our everyday life. Like that there is no certain set of rituals. There's no, you know, intense ritual that we could do that would ever get us the certainty that we want, that there's (laughs) like that that certainty doesn't exist and that if anyone out there feels that they're certain about anything in life, not just in the OCD realm, but anything that they're just essentially in denial, right? Like I have a husband and I have, hold on, I got logged out because I wasn't touching my laptop. Did you lose me? Am I back? No, no, you're here. Okay, sorry. Um, I wasn't touching my laptop and it logged me out. Um, Sorry, (laughs) you have to edit that. (laughs) Um, That's okay. But so, I mean, so many of us out there, like, we're like, oh, no, like, I know, like, I'm I'm certain about everything in my life. I'm certain. I'm certain. Well, I, I have a husband and I have a, a four-year-old. I don't know 100% that they're alive right now. Yeah. <laughs> right? Like, I have, I have no reason to believe that they're not. 
Um, and my husband just texted me probably an hour ago. And to my knowledge, my son is at daycare right now, but I don't know with 100% certainty that they are alive right now. I don't know that. You wouldn't be able to without extensive effort, right? Like without absolutely extensive effort and, you know, um, that's, so it sounds like, you know, the proverbial bear, like ERP is not necessarily about the contamination, the sexual orientation. It's just how individuals find a way to sort of play with, work through that sort of intolerance for doubt and uncertainty. We all have our own light arenas where we feel more doubt or more uncertainty. And that's sort of where the the healing, the experimenting, the playing with it sort of lives, it sounds like. Right. And I mean, anyone out there who has OCD or thinks they might have OCD, there are lots of ways that they're probably tolerating uncertainty in their everyday life too, right? Like anytime that we get in the car, right? Like we sit with uncertainty, we take that bet, right? Like we literally take a bet anytime that we get into the car. Anytime, for instance, that I send my kid to school these days, right? Like with all the shootings and stuff, like I literally take a bet every day, whether I like it or not. Right. right. Or walk like, out the house, there's a small percentage, right, for an, an 100% accident every time we just walk out the house. Yeah, there's an absolutely and being alive. And 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 we're never no matter what ritual we do, unless we completely isolate ourselves and wrap ourselves in bubble wrap and don't engage in any of the rit- and engage in any of the values or any of the routine activities that we need to do in order to function, stay alive and and live a somewhat happy life. We're, we have to take those bets. And no matter what ritual you do, you can't get out of that, right? Like you don't get get to get out of that. I don't get to get out of that. Like part of life and being a human is that we have to take bets and that we have to tolerate some level of uncertainty and that that is just how life goes. And so people who have OCD, they'll notice that they're they're sitting with uncertainty all the time. It's just where they're not tolerating uncertainty that's where their OCD is, right? Like when exactly. I was struggling with postpartum OCD, I handled I handled uncertainty in a ton of different areas of my life, getting in the car, you know, whatever, um, trying new foods or, or whatever it is. And as soon as it came to harm uh, with my son, like that I thought that I might harm him, first intrusive thought I ever had about him was that I might snap his ankles when I was getting him dressed. Um, and I remember very clearly being like, uh-uh, like stakes are too high. I'm done. I'm not doing that. I'm not doing that. Like it, I would not tolerate the uncertainty of whether or not I could snap his ankles. And of course, that led to so many other things. And I, I could literally go on about this forever. But that is to say, yes, we use these superficial fears of contamination and fear of knives or fear of sexual orientation or fear that you might have hit someone with a car, you know, hit and run OCD or whatever. We use that to kind of like poke the bear. But but what we need to sit with is that sitting with uncertainty is hard. And oh, no matter God. what I do, that no, no matter what I do, I have to sit with that doubt. And, you know, I always tell my clients, it's it's not maybe I did hit someone with my car, maybe I didn't. It's it's sitting with uncertainty is hard. And, you know, like I'm not answering that question. It, it's, it's like very nuanced, but it's not about the car. It's not about the contamination. It's not about your sexual orientation. It's about your dysfunctional relationship with doubt and how you are trying to seek out certainty. And so if we can work with that and if we can work with someone to truly accept uncertainty and to tolerate uncertainty in their life, they don't have to like it, but they do have to accept it because to do anything else is completely denial, right? Um So I think if we just do exposures and we don't truly make accepting uncertainty like a a part of the recovery process, you'll extinguish the fears, right? Like you may extinguish your fear with contamination. You may extinguish your fear of knives. You may extinguish your fear of, you know, little kids. But But it may just move on to another theme, right? That's exactly what happens. That's exactly what happens, right? Like that that whack-a-mole, right? So many people identify OCD as being the whack-a-mole game. And it's because you treated the superficial content. You were extinguishing the fear. You were extinguishing the very superficial content, um, but you weren't actually trying to accept uncertainty in life in general. And so, you know, subtypes are great. They draw people in. I feel like people resonate with them. But I also get really fearful that like it puts too much emphasis on the subtype itself versus what OCD actually is, which is, of course, the doubt disorder. Well, and you started kind of touching on your personal experience a little bit. Do you mind telling us a little bit more about 
what your experience with OCD looked like. And also, you know, you've mentioned ARP. Tell us a little bit about also what supported you, if, if you don't mind, after you share some about your personal experience. For sure. Yeah. So um, I always knew that I wanted to be an OCD therapist. Um, I have always been a super anxious person. So earliest memories are me, you know, not wanting to go to sleepovers because, you know, like what if I wanted to leave and I can't leave or, you know, what if I'm uncomfortable and I can't get out? So (laughs) I'm um, laughing because I can, I can relate. My mom and I had a (laughs) whole, a whole plan. I called like, can I sleep over? She's like, do you want me to say no? And I'm like, yep. Okay, no, I'll yep. get you. You know, we had a whole totally, so I'm just, I'm totally, because I understand. So keep, sorry, keep going. Yeah, and I mean, it's it's everywhere, right? And that's like part of the whole story here, which is, uh, you know, like even in school, I, I eventually got, you know, older. Even in school, though, I was still super nervous to sit with certain people in the cafeteria. I would be nervous to. You know, if I was in a new class or a new school, I would be afraid to go up and say hi to someone or whatever. But I eventually learned that just ripping the Band-Aid off and doing the hard thing was better, you know, like more comfortable, honestly, than like sitting and, and wallowing in my own discomfort and and just like waiting in fear, right? So I learned eventually that it was just easier to do it, like to do it and like go sit with the scariest person. Like if you're worried that someone's going to call on you, just raise your freaking hand, like just do it and do the scary thing. Um, so I really carried that with me. Uh, but then when I went to to college in my psychology 101 course, which is like totally unheard of that we even get into this in a psych 101 course. So I was super lucky. Um, but we learned about exposure and response prevention, which is come to find out the gold standard treatment for OCD and anxiety. It's just a fancy way of saying that it's really an ev- it's the most evidence-based treatment and most heavily supported um, evidence-based treatment for OCD, anxiety, and related conditions. And exposure and response prevention is just that. It is approaching your fears, reducing um, safety behaviors or compulsions that you typically would do to make yourself feel better, and reducing avoidance. Um, and so I was like, this is in my bones. This is everything that I want to do. So I really just dedicated every paper from then on out, every internship, every opportunity to work with people who have OCD and anxiety. It was about, it was, it was about that. Um, you know, still had, I still identified as an anxious person, but still very bold in my pursuit of trying to make that better. Um, but then I had my son in 2018. Um, and, you know, traumatic, I would say, delivery process, like things just as typical motherhood is. Like it Uh didn't, I didn't think that it was going the way that I wanted it to. And it was like a very harsh reality in that way. Um, But I remember he was like three or four weeks old. I was changing him, um, putting socks on him as just a, a newborn. And I had that intrusive thought. I had the intrusive thought, like, what if I just snap his ankles? And, you know, not a totally unreal intrusive thought, especially in postpartum, it certainly happens. But I interpreted that as being significant somehow. Like, what does that mean about me that I had that thought? Would I ever want to actually do that to him? You know, I'm not supposed to be alone with this baby, so on and so forth. And for the longest time, I didn't put socks on him. Um, And eventually it wasn't just socks. It became pants and shirts. And, you know, eventually I didn't want to give him a bath either because I started to have intrusive sexual thoughts. Like, did I look at his penis for too long? even to this day, um, still so much better than what I used to be, but he's four and a half now and he wears a diaper to bed. If I don't tuck his penis down, he pees all over himself, obviously, because <laughs> yeah. it's pointing up. But right. I, so I still every every day, every night, I have to like tuck his penis down to make sure that it's down. And most nights I have the, uh, an additional intrusive thought of like, do you really still need to be doing that or do you just really want to do that? And it's super ego dystonic, obviously. I just notice it and go back to what it was that I was doing. But there was a time where that would be like I where I wouldn't have given him a bath, where I wouldn't have changed right. his diaper. Um, and so, you know, it was just really unique because I knew everything that I was doing, you know, like I had already been working with OCD and anxiety for like 10 years <laughs> by the time that I had yeah. had him. And so I knew, I knew that I was having intrusive thoughts. I you knew had the logical knowledge, right? Like you 100, had totally. Totally. I was like, I know I'm asking my husband to do a ritual right now and I don't yeah. care. I don't right. care. Um, 
And so I just, I think that's really important to validate to, to other people is that, you know, like I knew all the things, like I knew exactly what I was doing and I still did it. Like I still asked my husband to wake up in the middle of the night because I thought, especially when it came to sleep deprivation, I struggled so bad with that. It made me question my reality. It made me question right. if I did things that I didn't remember. Um, it made me question, like, did I like bash his head into a wall and I just don't remember because I'm so sleep deprived? I would check my son for hours. Like, and, and it, it wasn't enough that I needed to have my husband wake up to check him. And I remember crying to my husband, like, I know I shouldn't be asking you to do this, but I can't, like, I, I, I can't sleep until you do this. And, and the emotional upheaval, so, right? Like the emotional oh upheaval that underlies these obsessions and compulsions. Like, it's like, even with all, I'm, I'm grateful that you're sharing this because even with all this knowledge, even with all this training, right? Even with understanding sort of the, the gold standard treatment, it's still what, like when that emotional upheaval just like, you know, it's, we're doing the best we can in, in any moment. I, what was the turning point for you? Like, when did things start to shift where like, waking up to check or like not changing your son, right? Or giving him baths? When was there, was there a specific turning point? Was there a specific moment or was it, I don't know, was it a little more slow and steady? I think it was a little bit of both, right? Like, you know, OCD definitely snowballs over time and I experienced that. Um, yeah. I got myself into some, what I, probably I would call some dangerous rituals. Um, I had this thing where, you know, if I took him anywhere, I would be worried. I would have that intrusive thought, like, were you so sleep deprived that you thought you put him in the car, but you didn't? And right. so I would have to check in the mirror to make sure that he was in the back seat. And eventually that wasn't enough. I, I had this thing where I had to like engage all of my five senses. <laughs> um, and it, that came up in a lot of other ways, but um, like, so I needed to see him, but then I needed to also hear him. So I right. would like talk to him and wait for him to smile or uh, to like coo or laugh or whatever. Eventually that wasn't enough. I needed to see him and hear him and like reach back and touch him. Eventually that wasn't enough. And I started actually like pulling over on the side of the highway and pulling over on the side of the road to actually like undo him from his car seat and feel him in my arms. Like yeah. that I could feel the weight, right? It's like it's like that pinch me, right? Like I, I wanted almost exactly. like that pinchingness to yeah. like make sure that I was awake and that I was with it, but it was never this is enough. Real. And yeah, like pinch me, make I, sure this is yeah. real. <laughs> I remember having this thought of like, what's next, right? Like, yeah. what am I going to do next? Like, what what else could this possibly want from me? Like, I'm already pulling over in the middle of the highway. Like, what else? Where else could this possibly go? Right. And so, you know, I think it was that point where and and I like to be totally honest, like I've I've opened, opened up about this before too. Like I became suicidal. I I became like so out of my mind. Um I I always envisioned, you know, like rolling out of the back seat of a car. Um like just opening the window and rolling out, opening the window and rolling out uh, or opening the door and rolling out and I just I just had this like very doom-filled like inner knowing that like, this is going to, it's going to get that bad. Like it's going to get that mm -hmm. bad. Um, and so, yeah, I, I immediately called a, a therapist. Um, and luckily like I was able to get in, which I know is not often the experience, but yeah, I, I had to do my own exposures, had to do lots of driving with my son. Um, I was responsible for, you know, all the diaper changes. I was responsible <laughs> for all of those things. And I had to like, not engage with the OCD, right? Like that's such a big part of it. You can't just do the exposures. You also have to do response prevention, which is driving and not checking to make sure that he's in the back seat. I had to it's hard um, work. Oh my gosh, it's so hard. And, and and it sucks, right? Like you're not sure if you're doing the right thing, but I just kept reminding myself of like uh, this has to be this has to be the answer. Like that that this has to work out. Like it's like we've mentioned it so many times today, but like that leap of faith, right? Like you have to just like keep in mind that like it sucks right now, but like this is what needs to happen. And I, I don't know when it's going to get better, but it eventually got it eventually got better. Um, and now that was like two years ago. Um, and oh my gosh, like I I would not be here if it wasn't for totally hitting bottom and having to go through therapy. I'm sure that I would be dead. I'm sure of it. 
And, you know, I always, people kind of know my story too. And, and I shared it on your podcast, whereas sometimes when we, when we hit that rock bottom, it's like, okay, you know, taking the risk to feel anxious, uncertain, doubtful, right? Taking the risk to feel those things suddenly kind of feels like the only alternative, you know, where we've spent so long avoiding it. But once we sort of get to that place where we are consumed, where the, the, our emotions, like the upheaval is so intense. And um, yeah, it sounds like, you know, you've, you've done a lot of work and I'm, I'm thinking there's probably a lot of people out there. Right. And I, I know, you know, past clients and, and patients and things like that, that have really struggled with, with postpartum OCD. And as someone myself, for whatever reason, I, I have struggled with OCD most of my life. It was a little bit quieter during the postpartum. I know it can go one way or the other. For me, it was a little bit quieter, but I was aware of the knives in my kitchen, you know? And for whatever reason, I knew it could have stuck at any other time. And it didn't, right? I was like, what if I just grab that knife or drop that knife? And, you know, but it wasn't... Um, it, it just, it didn't stick. And again, for whatever reason, for like six months postpartum, like my OCD was a little bit quieter with all the big biological hormonal shifts and, and whatnot. But I think there's a lot of people, I know there's a lot of people out there that struggle with postpartum OCD. Is, is there anything you would say to them about sort of the nature of the intrusive thoughts that they're experiencing, right? About, about hurting their babies that might be supportive? I think you shared a really great study. It was something along the lines of, um, mm. right. Moms that moms that experienced intrusive thoughts were actually far less likely to harm mm -hmm. their children than sort of the general population. Yeah. Something like so that, that would, yeah. So that would be, I have so much advice. I'll try to just like cram it, but that is, um, something that I would definitely start with, right. Is that a lot of times, when moms and, and this can happen to new parent to new parents in general, right? Like it can happen to dads, it can happen to even adoptive parents, um, it can happen to adoptive parents, it can happen to anyone, anyone who's a caregiver. Right. Um, so no one's immune to this. Um, but it's very common to have these intrusive thoughts. And just because someone's not talking about it and you don't hear about it doesn't mean that it's not happening. These things are very taboo to talk about, especially as a new mom, right? Like we yeah. often fall into that trap of like, don't you just love every minute? And don't you just love everything about being a mom? And it's yeah. like, no, like I <laughs> right. actually have like these awful intrusive thoughts that I'm like actually sexually attracted to my son. And even though I know that I'm not, and that's really disgusting. And I feel awful about it because my son deserves better than that. Like, we're not going to say that, right? Until right. someone else does, right? Like, and, and then someone says it and then it's like, oh my gosh, I've had those thoughts too. But it's hard to be the first person to do that. So I think definitely the first piece of advice would be that just because no one's talking about it doesn't mean that they're also not struggling. Like they also probably might experience these things too to some degree. Um, but it's just so taboo and not talked about. Um, second would be absolutely. So we've done research to show um, that moms who have these unwanted intrusive thoughts of harming or you know negatively affecting their baby – um, that they're actually less likely than those in the average population who say they don't have these thoughts um, to yeah. actually do and engage in those uh, behavioral actions, right, of actually harming their baby, which I think just, again, underscores the fact that when you have these unwanted, again, unwanted intrusive thoughts, they're the last thing that someone wants to do. And that's why it's so distressing. And that's why we go to all these ridiculous lengths to ensure that we're not, you know, going to be someone who loses control of our impulses or someone who slips up or someone who gives into that, right? Like, you know, I was probably going to be the last person who would ever harm my baby or the last person who would ever forget him because I was so, you know, like zoned in on right? that. Right. Yeah. I was so hypervigilant for that. Um, and then the third piece of advice too, if I could, would be that uh, the thoughts don't mean anything about you, that, you know, you know, having these harm intrusive thoughts or sexual intrusive thoughts or whatever these thoughts are, it doesn't mean that you want to do these things. If anything, it's an indication of what you value. Um, yeah. We know that OCD latches on to what it is that you value. Um, and I think new parenthood, especially for moms, it's a triple whammy. So yeah. we know that OCD, OCD latches on to what it is that we value, uh, what we feel most responsible for, and what is uncertain. And what is more all three of those things than having a baby? 
right? Like <laughs> what is more uncertain than having a baby? We don't know whether they're safe. We don't know if yeah. they need something and we're missing it. Like it's all very uncertain. So OCD loves that. And OCD also sleep deprivation and one hormone shifts. Yeah, it's a lot. <laughs> totally. It's it's so much. And then add on to that the responsibility, right? So OCD latches on to what we feel responsible for. Who else arguably is more <laughs> responsible, especially for a newborn than a mom, right? Yeah. Like who else? Right. Um so obviously it's that's a hot spot. And then finally, we know OCD latches on to what we value. Um, we can let go of, you know, these other things because it's like, oh, whatever. I don't really care about that, right? Like I don't, I don't really care uh, about getting sick. I don't really care about whatever. But I, I care about not snapping my son's ankles, <laughs> right? Right. right. Um, so, I mean, moms and new parents in general, like it's just a Petri dish. It is like a perfect Petri dish for these intrusive thoughts to really happen and exacerbate and take hold. And um, all those statistics that you hear are like, oh, you know, one to three percent of women who just had a baby experience postpartum OCD. That's complete crap. Um it's totally underrated. Um, that's because we aren't asking the right questions and because moms don't want to be honest about what it is that they're struggling with. If we actually anonymously and in a way that accurately reflected what postpartum OCD is, um, right. if we asked the right questions and we did it anonymously, I would guarantee that it would probably be above 50 or 60% of women who experience these. I imagine there's a lot of fear around like, oh my God, will social services get involved, totally. right? Like, and unfortunately so, that happens. I wish yeah. we didn't live in that world, but we do. But we do. <laughs> yeah. There's a, la- a major lack of understanding, right? And again, that's part of why the conversations are are so important. Like you said, if this is like at least half of new moms, this is not out of the ordinary, right? Like right. this is this is a common shared human experience. Mm-hmm. And it's above and beyond just the, um, you know, sending them right to inpatient because we think that they must want to do these things, which is obviously not true. If anything, research supports the opposite. You know, we're so quick to either one gaslight moms by saying like, oh, you know, motherhood is just, it, you know, you're a new mom. Like you're just getting used to things. And it's like, no, I'm not. Like I literally want to die. <laughs> like, yeah, I'm not I'm okay. I'm not just getting, I'm, I'm, I'm not, not okay. okay. Like, yeah. It's terrible when I and I'm a respected professional in my small little close knit community. And my my OBGYN knew what I did. She knew that I was an OCD professional and that I had many years of experience. Um, when I went to her and I told her that I was really struggling, she told me just to not be so hard on myself and let my son have a pacifier. I was like, I'm I want to just like jump across the table. <laughs> And like scream in your face. Yeah. Like, this is not okay. Like, if you're telling me that, yeah. like someone who I have a background in exactly what it is that I'm struggling with, like, what are you telling moms? What are you telling other moms? That this is brand have no new. idea. Right. That this is brand yeah. new for them and so bewildering, right? If they have no and, and and best case scenario, what happens is that they're slapped with this label of postpartum depression. Yeah. Which is it's totally an issue, but it's not the only issue. Right. Yeah, so there's postpartum anxiety, there's postpartum OCD, there's postpartum trauma, right? Like we oh, yeah. have to be thinking more critically, but we just don't care about moms, right? Like we just don't care about moms. So we, we don't care to actually like have those critical thinking types of experiences because it's like, well, you know, she had the baby, so she's fine. Exactly. Oh, at least you also, as someone like for me, my postpartum OCD was quiet. Like my OCD was quieter, but I did have postpartum trauma. I had a, I had a really traumatic pre- pregnancy and delivery and I was lucky. It was sort of the opposite space where my OBGYN was like, it's okay that you don't want to like have your kids crawling on you. It's okay that you don't want to hold them. It's okay. You can't hold both at the same time. Like she's like, I understand. And this is really common with a lot of new moms, like that, that you just get touched out really fast. And in, in my sort of experience, I was lucky because then if I think if someone hadn't said that to me, I'd be like, oh my God, I'm a terrible mom. Like I was, <laughs> I was born a terrible mom. I'm a terrible mom. I'll always be a terrible mom. And, and to sort of get sort of the support and the understanding of like, hey, you just have some healing to do here. And you have all these supports, right? Your husband and your in-laws and like lean into that and you focus on you. And I think if I didn't have that, it would have been um, 
I don't know. I think it would have been debilitating for a lot longer than it was for sure. Mm-hmm. Yeah, um, it's it's awful. <laughs> it, yeah, it's it's being a new mom is hard. <laughs> totally, hundred percent. It, it really is. Um, and you know, I kind of wanted to. You you touched on this that like okay, I had all this training, right? I had all this sort of logical knowledge, but when it came down to it in the moment, right? In that moment, like it was still just completely overwhelming. And I know for me, there's been more than a few times when I was so consumed by particularly like health OCD. um, When I was so consumed that during those times, my nervous system often became like completely dysregulated. Like, and you know, physiology tells us that like the prefrontal cortex goes offline when we're in fight or flight mode. So it can be really challenging in those moments, sort of like you shared like supporting ourselves with cognitive, more cognitive therapies like ERP and and CBT, they can almost feel inaccessible. Like, how did you support yourself? Like before you were ready to sort of take on the ERP, the more cognitive stuff, like how did you support yourself or what would you like share with others? If we're in that space where it's completely overwhelming, right? Like where we're just consumed and we're just not seen straight like how can we support ourselves before like ERP or CBT or any of those things may become accessible more accessible to us in the moment I mean I I know it sounds super cliche but I think OCD loves to be in the future right like OCD and anxiety love the future loves to catastrophize loves to play all these ridiculous you know, outlandish scenarios about all the things that could go wrong. It also loves to latch onto the past. It likes to, (laughs) you know, have you doubt your memory. It likes to have you doubt whether you did this or whether you did that or whatever. OCD does not like to be in the present moment. There's nothing for it to hold onto there. And so, you know, like it feels again, like a risk, like that I'm not being vigilant by thinking ahead or that I'm not being, you know, I'm too complacent if I don't look in the, in the future, in the past, uh, but, you know, like I, I found a lot of benefit in practicing mindfulness and paying attention on purpose in the moment. And mindfulness doesn't always have to be this like hardcore meditative process. It certainly no. can be, but it can also just be paying attention on purpose to the present moment um, and really witnessing, right, like that I'm going down this rabbit hole. There's nothing good for me there, like that there's nothing good waiting for me at the other end of that rabbit hole. Um and I know it it always benefited me to think about like tomorrow, Jenna, or like three weeks from now, Jenna, or two years from now, Jenna. Um, I think sometimes when it comes to OCD, right, like we want that ritual right now and we want to feel better <laughs> right now. Um, but what's the cost, and if, right? Yeah. Like thinking about, hey, what's the cost and what is the benefit? Like mm-hmm. what do I want things to look like, right? Right. Like, and if, if you're only guided by – like what you want right now, you're going to do rituals, right? Like you're going to just keep giving into your anxiety. Um, But if you can be guided more so by like what Jenna three weeks from now is going to need to do or what Jenna four years from now, like where you want to be kind of in the future, then I think that can help more um, functionally kind of guide your thought process. And I found a lot of support from moms. I know um, like I – Exactly. Um, I really, I, I started actually my own mom group. Um, I found myself going to like breastfeeding support groups. I didn't need any help for that. I just wanted to be around other moms. Like I just wanted to be with someone else who understood me um, yeah. and like could resonate with my experience a little bit. And so, you know, finding that community, I think whatever that looks like for you is really helpful. Um Some books that I found helpful are Karen Kleinman's. Um, Karen Kleinman's work has been really great. So um, she has a lot of books. Uh, I think the very, very first one is called Good Moms Have Scary Thoughts. Uh, Mm -hmm. And it's a really good like visual depiction of like actually what motherhood is like um, and how we kind of like just superficially brush over that. Like, yeah, everything's going well. Like I'm loving every moment, but then there's an actual, you know, thought bubble of actually what she's thinking about. And it's, again, bringing home this whole idea that you can have these scary thoughts and still be a really good mom. Like good moms have scary thoughts. Yeah. That's, yeah, I was going to say, just talking about like that connection piece, it just reminds me how like that sort of connection or community, which we can get right from being around other moms or reading books by professionals that sort of understand this can be like a great place to at least start where we feel that sort of connection, that resonation 
in our nervous system because that, right, like connection is just one of the major love languages of our nervous system when it's feeling so jazzed and so dysregulated. So I can understand why connecting with moms that are understanding or connecting to books by authors and professionals, like that, that makes sense, at least starting from a place of understanding. That's, that's a much nicer place to start from in regards to healing when we're struggling. Mm-hmm. Absolutely. Well, Jenna, thank you so much for taking time to hop on the show. Can you remind us what's your Instagram handle again so people can find you? Yeah. So I, uh, like you mentioned, I live mostly on Instagram. So I'm at jenna.overbaugh. If you resonated with what you've heard here, you'll also see a lot of my work over um, at the Instagram at treatmyocd. So I do a lot of OCD education over on that page as well. That's for NoCD. Um, It's a teletherapy platform. Um, So if you're interested, reach out to me. I'm happy to tell you more about that opportunity and those services. I'm a therapist there at this time. I'm so happy to connect you. We have a mom support group there too, um, which I think is really, you know, resonates with kind of what we just talked about with postpartum OCD. So we actually offer support groups for people who have OCD, which is amazing. Um, And then, yeah, my podcast called All the Hard Things. And especially if you resonated with the postpartum uh, content, I actually have a whole um, feature on my podcast. It's called Anonymom, where I bring in a bunch of moms um, to share their anonymous experiences about like the 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 dirty, the down and dirty, and the dark stuff um, that we often don't talk about in motherhood quite enough. So I'm on Instagram at jenna.overbaugh, at treatmyocd. Um, and yeah, you can find me kind of all over those places. Well, thank you so much, really, for sharing your story today, right? It takes it takes a certain degree of vulnerability to put ourselves out there and and hope that we're not misunderstood, right? And um, thank you for, like, again, coming on the show. And thank you for holding a space, right, and on your platform for people and women and new moms and all sorts to come and sort of, you know, say, well, I really had this really what feels like a bad or strange thought and, and helping us feel safe in that space. So thank you. Mm -hmm. Thank you so much. That's our episode. Thanks so much for tuning in today. If you're enjoying the show, please subscribe and take a minute to write a review on iTunes so that we can reach and support more people. If you're looking for one-on-one coaching or have a question you'd like answered on the show, please visit notanotheranxietyshow.com. And until next time, remember, be kind to yourself. Thank you.